Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here. If you want to turn with me over to Luke chapter 17. We continue on in our series in Luke. This week we're in week 59. We've been here for a little bit, and we've got seven more chapters to go. So it's your guess as well as mine how, how much longer we're going to be here. Probably for another, who knows, year or something. We're, st- we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 this morning. Um, while you're turning there, where, where, did, where did Yemi go? Is he teaching? Okay, he's serving. He's doing the right thing. He's doing what none of you are doing. No, I was kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, okay? Yemi's got some important news to share, and I wish he was here to share it. You'll have to wait. I know the suspense is killing you, but I don't want to steal his thunder. Anyways, after church today, ask Yemi if anything important happened this weekend, okay? That's your job. Say, Yemi, what happened this weekend that we should know about in your life? All right? That's all I'm going to say. All right, so we're going to look at Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. I'm just going to pray, and we'll commit our time here in the Word to the Lord. So God, we, we come before you this morning, and we just we say thank you so much for just the, the opportunity that we have to dig into your holy scriptures. God, we know that you, you reveal to us your purposes and your ways and yourself and your Word, and and so we, we ask that you would continue to reveal Jesus Christ to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding and eyes to see and a, a receptive heart to receive your word. And God, I pray that we would, you would help us to focus our attention, focus our affections, focus our desires upon you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I remember one... Holy Christmas morning at the Hamstra house, back when I was living with my parents and my two younger brothers. And on this particular Christmas morning, the brothers, me and, and, and David and Josh, decided to get a present for my parents. And we wanted to get a nice present. We wanted to give them something that would really bless them. So we, I think, we, I don't remember what it was. We went out and we spent a little bit more money than, than we probably could afford to, to spend. And being brothers, Dave and I, pitched in, and we bought the gift, and we went to my brother Josh, who's the youngest, and said, Josh, would you please also pitch in some money? Said, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll get it to you, I'll get it to you. Well, he never got the money to us. And so, on Christmas morning, um, we gave the gift to my parents, after we've been talking to my brother about pitching in for the present all along, and he never, never ponied up, right? So on the gift, on that Christmas morning, we said, with love from your son's John, David, and not Josh. <laughs> that was very hurtful to Josh. <laughs> but he got what he deserved, right? I mean, he didn't pony up, so that's what we did. Anyways, it was tough living in the Hampshire house, okay? You had to bring your A game every single day, or you were going to get beat up or pushed down, or, you know, just, it was just hard. It was hard. But there still needs to be some forgiveness here, I'm sure, on, on someone's part, right? Now, this morning, what we're doing is we're looking at a chapter on discipleship and particularly on forgiveness. And, and so, for us to understand what it means to follow after Christ, 
Jesus begins to, in his section in Luke, begin to describe for us what does it mean to, to follow and pursue Jesus Christ. When he says, look, come follow me and pick up your cross daily, what does that mean for us? What, what's, what's, what does that look like for us to, to follow after Jesus Christ every single day? And so here in this section of Scripture, Jesus begins to give us the contours of a life of discipleship. And although we may think of a discipleship as being kind of a personal journey because it is a personal journey, for us we need to understand discipleship in the context of community. That we're not just kind of lone rangers out there following Christ, kind of doing what we want to do. God has provided for us a body of believers, a family of brothers and sisters in Christ who in a sense walk this road of discipleship together. That we're not alone in this. And so as we begin to talk about these kinds of forgiveness and relationships, we have to understand that he's talking about a community of believers walking this out together. And so although this is personal, it's also very much a community understanding of discipleship. And that's what I want for us today, this morning, to really see this in light of who we are, not just who I am. This is who we are as believers in Jesus Christ, as his family. And so, this morning, we're going to look at two vital relationships. Number one, the relationship that we have with one another, but secondly, the relationship that we have with Almighty God. These are two vital relationships in our, in our lives. And to, the, and to the degree to which we, we really work and we, we understand this kind of discipleship and community, I really think is the way in which we're going to see growth and maturity in our lives. Maturity is impo- really, I think, impossible to to come about in our lives alone. It has to be lived out in community. And thanks be to God that he's given us a family. That he's given us brothers and sisters who can come around us and love us and look after us and pray for us, call us out. This is what God has done. But any amount of talk about discipleship, we ha- it has to be rooted into our identity of who we are in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you more things to do. I'm going to lay on you more stuff. He doesn't say that. What He says is, I'll give you rest. And so we have to understand, is even before we begin to talk about what Jesus launches into in chapter 17, we have to understand that this is in the context of who we are in Jesus Christ. And so just from just the first couple of chapters from Ephesians, I just want to just quickly go through who we are in Jesus Christ. And then in light of who we are, now God will help us then to understand what does that mean for us as a community of believers. And so we see in Ephesians, you don't have to turn there, Ephesians 1.5, that we have been adopted into God's family through Jesus Christ. That we have also been redeemed through Christ's blood. That He has forgiven our sins. That He has sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit. That He's brought us from death into life and have united us with Jesus Christ. We're also God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for a specific purpose and task. That we were once aliens and strangers and now we've been brought into God's family. We've been brought near to Him by the blood of Christ. And we've also been reconciled to God through the cross and have been brought into God's family. Those are all just from the first two chapters of Ephesians. 
That is what God has done in each one of us. So as brothers and sisters in Christ, as those who have been reconciled to Him, for those who have been forgiven of their sins, for those who have been adopted into God's family, for those who have been called family and have been called, can call God as our Father, now let's read what He says in Luke 17, verses 1 and 2. And so we have to remember in this context, Jesus here is, we begin in Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, we see the, the, the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, begin to grumble and complain because Jesus is talking with you-know-who. It's those sinners. It's the tax collectors. It's the people who have been far from God. And the Pharisees don't like this because they've done a, a really phenomenal job at building walls to keep people, to keep sinners out and away from them. So you can imagine if here at church, if we... We just said, you know, we're going to keep all the sinners out. We're going to build big walls. What we're going to do is we're going to make it so hard for when, they, when people come in here to really live by anything, that's going to crush them. You need to be reading your Bible hours a day. If you're not praying, you're going to be looked down on. You need to dress a certain way. You need to act a certain way. You can only see certain movies. You can only do... And we just start laying the rules on thick and heavy. And then we say, oh, then you can come in if you follow all our rules. And as you can imagine, for the people who are far from God, they had no chance. There's no way they're ever going to be near. And so they did a great job of just keeping people at bay. But here, what was Jesus doing? He's drawing near. He's eating with them. He's spending time with them. He's having fellowship with them. He is pursuing. That's what we see in the first few verses, the few, few sections of Luke chapter 15, is Jesus is pursuing so we see the parable of the, the lost coin and lost sheep and the prodigal son. There is a sense in which God is on mission to pursue the lost and the broken and those who are far from him. And then we as God's representatives are also called to go on mission with him. That isn't just what God is doing by himself, that he has called each one of us to go on mission with him. And the way in which God is rescuing and redeeming people for himself is through his church, his bride, his body, which is going out and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is using us as brothers and sisters, as his family, to proclaim the good news that sets people free, that brings them from death into life, that brings them from a place of far to place of near, that they could be near Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to talk about in Luke chapter 16, talks about the dishonest manager and, and the use of resources that God has entrusted us with, that he's given us his resources to use for his purposes. Then we have the rich man and Lazarus, where Jesus in this section is calling out to the Pharisees and those who have wealth to use that, for again, for his purposes, not to be fooled to think that it's all about us. Now, Sorry, that was a, wrong, a long way to get to verses 1 and 2 and 17. But I want us to give the context for what he's saying because he's still in the same context. He's still with the same group of people. And so he said to his disciples now in, in verse 1, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. 
He says, temptation to sin is sure to come. Sin in the community is inevitable. Right? Sin in the community is inevitable. Why? Because you and I are here. Because you and I are here. That's why. Spurgeon said this. Charles Spurgeon, I love this quote. He says, the day we find the perfect church, it becomes imperfect the moment we join it. So that's the, that's the goal, right? We understand this. That somehow you and I, in the context of community, are going to offend one another. We're going to sin against one another. I'm going to say something offensive to you, and you're not going to like it. And you're going to say something offensive to me, and I'm not going to like it. I mean, that's the reality of doing community together with a whole bunch of sinners. That we are going to offend and hurt. And that, that is the reality with who we are in the context of church. And so looking for a perfect church, you're not going to find it. Because the moment you show up, it's not perfect anymore. I mean, that's the reality. That's what Spurgeon's saying. Now, that's not a very happy picture, right? But this is what Jesus is saying. And he goes on to give a warning in the form of a threat. He says, look, there's, an, there's this um, a millstone, which was, would, he was using as this visual of an upper millstone, which was used for grinding. It was round with a hole through the center of it, weighed hundreds of pounds, and would have been pulled by like an, a large animal to grind whatever they were, or to squash whatever they wanting to squash. But it's grapes, or olives, or wheat, whatever. He says, bottom line, if, if one of these were tied around your neck, it's certain death for you, okay? So that's, that's bad. That is bad. He says, don't let it be that way. He's building to what he's going to get to in the next couple of verses. But I want us to understand this, that this kind of, this context of community and family, that we're not going to escape sin because you and I are here. And he says, that is a, that is a bad thing. That, this thing is, is, is something that you need to deal with, to recognize, to identify. So he goes on to give this visual of this millstone. So what does that look like? Well, if you think about your children, if you've got multiple kids, and your children are all in another room playing, and they're having fun, and it's loud, and all of a sudden it gets real quiet, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? It gets quiet all of a sudden. There's never good things going on when it gets quiet, right? What do you do? You immediately get up and go on the other, like, what's going on here? Okay, who's hurting who? What, you know, like, you need to stop the situation because every single time that it gets quiet in a room full of kids, you know something bad is about ready to go down. That's just the way it is. But what does it look like for adults? What does it look like for us in a community? Maybe gossip? Maybe slandering someone? Maybe it's a hard heart that as you begin to talk to someone and you're just upset and, and angry at someone, it kind of spills over onto someone else. And that person who's listening and, and hearing what you're saying is now, they're beginning to develop a hard heart towards the person that you're ticked off about. Or maybe it's, it's making yourself look better at the expense of somebody else. So I couldn't believe what so-and-so did the other week. You know, we need to pray for them, but let me just tell you what happened first. And so we begin to build ourselves up and make ourselves look better. And Jesus says this is serious. He says, look, it is better for you to die a violent, terrible death than to lead others to sin. 
This is not a good thing. He goes on in, in 3 and 4. He says this is, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So in the context of community where there is sin that is going to happen, it is inevitable. What do we do with this sin that we see around us or in our own hearts? He says, I've got a solution. I've got the way forward for us as a community. I've got the way in which you can somehow reflect the glory and the ministry of God to you, to the rest of the world. He says, if you see a brother or sister in Christ sinning, rebuke them, reprove them, confront them, talk to them. It's not okay to turn a blind eye and pretend like it's just going to go away or that this person doesn't need to hear what you're saying. He said, it is not okay. We need as brothers and sisters in Christ, as God's family who reflect the kingdom of God to the world, need to take seriously our charge as God's children to reflect his glory in ever-increasing ways. And one of that ways in which God has provided for us is in the context of the sin in our own lives being confronted and called out and rebuked. Because the sin of one person, it does affect the whole family. The sin of one person, just like in your own household, the sin of one person affects the other members of your, of your immediate household. The same way in the church, in the broader family, the sin of one person will absolutely affect and have ripple effects to the rest of the church. And God wants that dealt with. God wants that identified. Why is this important? Because what we've just read in verse 2, he says, this is a bad thing. This millstone hung around your neck. It's not a good thing. I remember my own life when I had conflict with another person. And this conflict just seemed to just kind of go on and on. It just wasn't dealt with. And John Leitzel came to me, this was a couple of years ago, and pulled me aside and said, this conflict has got to stop. You are stopping the flow of God's grace to you and to your church by allowing this conflict to continue on and you need to address this thing and make it right. And at that moment, it wasn't fun. No one likes to be called out. No one likes to be told that there's things in their lives that need to be adjusted. No one likes those things. And, And that's one of the reasons it's so hard for us to do because we think, well, I don't like that. If I do that to you, if I say that to you, you you may not want to hang out with me anymore. You may push me aside. You may think, man, that guy's always down on me and he's always always laying into me about stuff and I don't want to... And so there's this sense in which we pull back and say, you know what, we'll allow these relationships to go so far and no further. But I'm so grateful for my brother because he came to me, John Leitzel, and said, look, this has got to stop. And by God's grace... By God's grace, we're able to reconcile and able to continue to flow in this relationship that we previously had. And I thought, that was love for me. He loved me enough. He cared about me enough. He was more concerned about my relationship to Almighty God than he was concerned about my relationship to him. And it may get a little bit awkward. And maybe I'm going to say, oh, I don't want to hang out with John anymore because he's always, he's always saying stuff. And he's always trying to correct me. 
But it was God's grace to me. Because it not only brought a reconciliation between me and another person, but it also did something between me and Almighty God. Because I was, in a sense, walking in disobedience to what God has called me to do. Clearly, the scripture, I was in violation of what God has called me as his son, as one who's been redeemed. He's called me and he said, okay, we're going to take care of this. One of the ways that God uses to bring correction in our life and discipline in our life is through other believers. It is through brothers and sisters who come to us and say, there is something going on here that isn't right. And by the grace of God, I'm going to address you and patiently and kindly address this and we're going to walk together in this because this isn't okay. It was the most loving thing that John could do for me because he was caring for my soul. He was caring for my relationship with God. And if we want to get serious about discipleship, if we want to get serious as a church about discipleship and maturity, we can't just look the other way when there's evil in our presence. We just can't pretend like it's just going to go away or it's no big deal. It is a big deal. Jesus says, I want you to address the evil in your midst. And I want you to graciously and kindly deal with it. I don't want you to be indifferent towards evil. So what's the purpose of correction? What's this purpose of rebuke that he's talking about? It's what happens next. It's repentance. That's the hope. The hope of correction isn't just the fact that I, I'm some how in a spiritually mature place and I'm more mature than you and I'm going to help you see the light. The hope and purpose of correction and rebuke and reproof is repentance, is restoration, is redemption. That's the purpose of it all. He says, look, this is what I want. I want there to be this redemption and this, this purpose of God coming to life in, in our midst. That we as the church would be a people of God who are known as those with redemptive relationships. That we would be a people who are known by their redemptive relationships. Because the world knows nothing of this. When we talk about confrontation in the world, it goes south quick. It is bad. Things don't go well. When you think about when you've had conflict with other family members who maybe they're not believers, maybe they are. And it's almost easier to kind of stuff it down deep and just forget about it than it is to deal with it. But God doesn't want us just to tolerate evil. Look in the other direction. It's repentance. The goal of rebuking or reproving is always redemptive. It is always redemptive. And this goes for things like church discipline. The goal of church discipline is always redemptive. It's always to bring a person back to a place of restoration and forgiveness. That is always the goal. It is always redemptive. That's what God's intention for what he's, he's done for us, right? He has brought redemption to us. That was the goal of the cross, is to bring redemption of his people. And so what happens when a person sins against you and then continues to sin against you over and over and over again? What does God say that we do? We keep forgiving. We continue to forgive. This is hard. I want to read this quote from Leon Morris. He writes this, From the world's point of view, a sevenfold repetition of an offense in one day must cast doubt on the genuineness of the sinner's repentance. 
right? I mean, if I've done something against you seven times in a day, and I continue to go to you over and over, hey, I'm sorry, hey, I'm sorry. I'm, at some point, you're going to say, okay, look, I don't believe you. You don't mean it, right? If you would have meant it, then you wouldn't have done it again. And so you can see where we get to a place, okay, I've had enough. But that's not what Jesus Christ is talking about here. This is the amazing part. He goes on to say, but that's not the believer's business. He says the believer's business isn't to say, okay, I've, I've, I've forgiven you three times or four times or seven times, and now I've had enough, and now we can just move on. I'm, not, I'm done forgiving you. You've really screwed up enough. He says that's not the believer's business. The believer's business is forgiveness. That's our business. As believers, we are in the business of forgiveness. And that's what he's calling us to. And this is supernatural. Because if you've ever been at a place in your marriage where it seems like things just are not working properly, and you just keep running into the same issues over and over and over again, and it just gets harder and harder and harder, there comes a point where you just want to say, forget it. This is just too hard. Let's just either forget about it and move on. Let's not deal with this. Or let's just live in a state of constant conflict. Jesus is saying our business is forgiveness. That is what he is calling us to do. Because remember, we're talking about discipleship, not in light of just doing more and being better Christians. We're talking about discipleship in light of the fact of what Almighty God has done for us in Christ Jesus. See, there isn't a point in our life where we become just absolutely perfect. We do not need forgiveness anymore. We are constantly in need of God's forgiveness over and over and over again. That every day of our life, every moment of our life, we are dependent upon God's grace for forgiveness. Because even in the good things that we do do, there's some stuff mixed in. Maybe I do want people to recognize me for serving this way. Maybe I do want the recognition that, that I get from other people. Maybe there is a bit of stuff that's mixed in and convoluted a lot of what we do. And we need God's grace to walk past that. And therefore, God's saying, look, just as I have forgiven you, just as I have poured out and lavished my grace upon you every single day, I want that to be the, the reality of for your relationships here on earth. That the people around you and the people in your life would experience that kind of mercy and grace that you've experienced from the Father. And now with these kinds of interpersonal relationships that we have with our spouse and our children and people at church, now is a reflection of what Almighty God has already done through Jesus Christ to us. That is what he's calling these kinds of relationships in our context to look like. Because it reflects him. Because it speaks to who God is. We want the world to know what Jesus Christ is like and who He is and what He has done. Let us reflect that in our relationships. Not just in my personal holiness at home, in my quiet time, in my reading the Bible, my prayer, which is good things. But let it be reflected in the context of who we are in Jesus Christ. That is what He is calling us to. And as I'm preparing this message, I am keenly aware that some marriages in this church in our family need to hear this and respond to this 
There isn't a place, like Jesus says, where we get to, we get to the point where we say, okay, that's enough. I've, I've forgiven you enough. Now I'm done. Now I'm just going to dismiss you. Now I'm not going to forgive you anymore. That's never the case because of who we are, because of what Jesus Christ has done. That is the reason why he says that doesn't stop with number seven. Number seven isn't just a set number. It's, it's a number of completion almost. It's like, hey, this, it, it can just go on and on and on. So that is, what, that is what God wants. We as God's family are to be known as a people of restored relationships. That is what we're to be known as. And I'm going to change a couple things here. And you can see at this point, looking on at verse 5, at this point, the disciples who've heard Jesus talk about using resources wisely, he's saying, don't cause others to stumble, graciously reprove one another. And then he talks about repeating just this forgiveness and this forgiveness and this forgiveness. At this point, the disciples who are listening into Jesus Christ, in a sense, like, had enough. Like, increase our faith. There's no way this is ever going to happen. You want us to live this way, to have these kinds of redemptive relationships, to have this kind of relationship in our marriage, with our family, with the people in the church. You want us to have these kinds of relationships that model the, the incredible grace of Almighty God to us in Jesus Christ. The disciples say, Lord, increase our faith. That's the disciples' response. I think this is a realistic response. I mean, this is where maybe when you think about how hard things are in your marriage or in your family and how broken things are, you think, man, how is this ever going to work? Lord, increase my faith. This thing is never going to be made right, Lord. Increase my faith. Lord, I can't keep forgiving this way. Increase my faith. That's exactly what the disciples said at this point in verse 5. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, this is Jesus' response, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So he's talking about this mustard seed faith that's not necessarily like a certain size because the mustard seed is just one of the smallest things they could possibly imagine. He's talking about this kinds of faith causing a mulberry tree, or what he would talk is a black mulberry. And this tree that Jesus is talking about is, has this extensive root system. These trees would lead, live to be 600 years old. And so this tree is just, this impossible to uproot. He say, look, with a mustard seed faith, you can tell this tree to be uprooted and cast into the ocean. Now, he's not saying, look, if you have less than that, maybe you should try a smaller bush or a little plant. He's not saying Christians with mustard seed faith should band together and create landscaping companies and do things like that. He's not making that claim. But he's, and he's not talking about an amount of faith. He's talking about the presence of faith. It's not the size that... It isn't like, oh, well, I've got a lot of faith, and therefore I can obey you in these great things, or I've got a little bit of faith, so I can't really do what you're calling me to do. He's just talking about the very presence of faith. 
And for the disciples who've been following Jesus Christ all along, there is this presence of faith. For us who've come to Jesus Christ and laid our lives before him, there is this presence of faith. And what he's saying is you don't need great faith to walk in obedience to what I'm calling you to do. No one can say, Lord, I can't do these things because my faith isn't there, and therefore I'm opted out of obeying you and what you've called me to do. I can only forgive three times because that's the size of my faith and then I'm off the hook. He's saying, no, look, the fact is that there is the presence of faith in your lives and that this faith is supernatural. It's come from God and is birthed from God, and therefore I have equipped you and provided you everything you need for obedience. Everything that I'm calling you to do in this section as disciples, as God's people, God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. That there's no part of our lives where we say, Lord, I can't do that. That's just too much. I've, I, my faith isn't that big. He is saying, I have provided everything you need in Christ Jesus for obedience. And it is a supernatural faith. This little bit of faith that you say, look, I only got this much. He says, look, this little bit of faith is so supernatural and so powerful that you are equipped to do whatever I've called you to do. I've equipped you and I've called you to be able to forgive your husband or your wife over and over and over again. As impossible as that may feel, God has given us the grace in Jesus Christ. He has given us all that we need for life and obedience. I want to get to the unworthy servants part, but I want to... Maybe Larry's preaching next week, so maybe Larry can get to that next week. I'm going to just lob one at him now. But I want, to, I want to just read this short story. And I want to stay here with this forgiveness because I believe the burden, the burden that I really have for us this morning is this area of forgiveness. That God wants to do a work of forgiveness in people's lives and people's marriages specifically this morning. That God is, God is at work And he wants to see this area of forgiveness to be opened up. And he wants to allow us, as God's community of restored relationships, the ones who proclaim a God who has reconciled us to himself, who's crossed the bridge that no one could cross in Jesus Christ to bring us near to God, that we would be the people who would say, in my marriage, this would also hold true. Because this is what God has done. I'll read a story. We'll finish with this. Corey Tenboom. It was in a church in Munich where I was speaking in 1947 that I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat. A brown felt hat clutched between his hands. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. Memories of the concentration camp came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, 
how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been my many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will the Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. Still, I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and it raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. I want us to experience the grace of God in the forgiveness in our relationships. I want us to experience this kind of supernatural grace that would allow us for the fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth and ninth time to say, I forgive you. It is washed clean. I'm not going to keep a record. I'm not going to hold it against you when you come back and say, well, that's what you said last time. Well, you said that, and you know, I believed you last time, but this is the last time. That somehow in God's supernatural grace, He would give us that ability to bring forgiveness and hope and healing in our lives. That is my burden for us as a church today. And we're going to take communion. And Joe's going to just play in his guitar. If there are things in your relationship with your spouse today, or with a friend, or with a family member, I want to encourage you, take seriously this call of Jesus Christ to be a reflection to the world of what he's already done for us. Take seriously this call to walk in obedience. Jesus goes on to talk about the unworthy servants, but summing it up, he says, look, there never comes a point where we say, look, I've done enough, God. Surely it's my time now. He says, even at the end, 
we will say to Almighty God, because of all that He's forgiven for us, all that He's done in our lives, we're still just unworthy servants. We're still subject to the Master, never the other way around. I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll, Larry will lead us in communion. We'll close out. But I want to encourage you, take this moment now. If there are areas in your marriage or in your relationship with someone else in your heart to bring forgiveness and to begin, maybe not vocalize it here if you can, great, but maybe later today or whatever that you would get right with that person because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So Almighty God, we thank you that we are the people of restored relationships. That just like you have brought us near to you and brought us into your family, so now you call us to model and to live out the very thing that you've already done in us. And God, I ask and I pray for the grace to live this out. I pray for the grace to walk in this truth. God, I pray for the grace for us as a church to begin to live this, to confront evil, to to not just turn a blind eye, but to begin to walk in this and graciously, not only to confront, but to repent and to receive forgiveness and wholeness and restoration. God, that is our desire as your people. God, do this work in us. We need you, Lord. So God, we ask, give us the boldness and the grace. In Jesus' name.